It's weird to watch somebody else do that. That was like the thing that I did for like seven or eight years. And these kids still mean a lot to me. I think they were like my students for, I don't know how much time Robert would like do the math on that, but just really thankful to share in that ministry, you know, with Robert and with those students. Makes me super proud. So uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, we're going to wrap up our study of Ecclesiastes today and I'll, I'll read the last portion of the book. Ecclesiastes is kind of in the middle of your Bibles after Psalms, Proverbs, uh, it'll also be on the screen for you. So let me read. I'm going to back up to verse 8, which I touched on last week, and then through the end of the book. So Ecclesiastes 12. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, And uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness to the flesh. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And this is God's good word for us. Thanks be to God. There's a 35-second long stage play by Samuel Beckett called Breath. It begins with the cry of a human voice, followed by the sound of a slow, steady inhale as lights begin to gradually brighten the stage. And as they do, you see a menagerie of everyday items kind of strewn about the stage as the lights reach full brightness. And then you hear a steady, forceful exhale as the lights begin to dim. And as the lights go out, you hear one last final cry, and the play is over. And that's it. I'm not sure how much it costs to go see that play, but I imagine actually if you did take the time to pay money to go to the theater, sit down, watch the play, it would probably still be a powerful, haunting statement about the brevity of life. Here and gone in a breath or vapor, or smoke, Ecclesiastes has been telling us this whole time. Hevel is the Hebrew word that we've all learned. Uh, It's most often translated as vanity. Some versions render it meaningless, others futility. Vanity of vanities, the preacher ends his book. Everything is vanity. It's fleeting, brief, frustrating, confusing, and futile. So we've been listening to that refrain from the teacher of Ecclesiastes for about 14 weeks now. And whether you're a a Christian person attending here or, or you're not a Christian, I hope that you found this book to be a meaningful conversation partner about the common life that we all share that's here and gone in a moment. So now the question is, what do we do with it? What do you do with the book? And what do you do with life? How do you make sense or live in response to the 
sweeping and gut-wrenching realities of human mortality that have been foisted on us by the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, thankfully, the book itself actually helps us with that. It helps us to know what, what to do with the book and what to do with life in this last section that I just read. Scholars debate whether or not the preacher of Ecclesiastes actually himself wrote this section because it kind of reads like an epilogue to the book. Uh, it's written in third-person language. You know, the preacher did this and the preacher said this. Perhaps it's written by a sage who's just passing on the teacher's words with a concluding paragraph as to how to handle the book. So, if you're familiar with the kids' show, Veggie Tales, this is like the part of the show where Bob and Larry come back out after the, the show to talk about what we have learned today. And the little song plays, you know, that Bob hates, and so what we have learned applies to our lives today. You know, God has a lot to say in his book. Here we are. Everything's Veggie Tales in the end. Vanity <laughs> of vanities. Uh, so, from the last section here, we get both uh, a commendation of the preacher's work and then a conclusion to the preacher's work. So a commendation and a conclusion. Let's look first at his commendation. And this is kind of like praise for a book. You know, when you buy a book on the back cover, sometimes there's what other people have said about it. They read it. Here's why this is so great. You get a little bit of that uh, in this sense in verse 9, 10, 11, and 12. So verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. One writer said the preacher of Ecclesiastes should be the patron saint of writers and teachers because this verse shows how hard he worked to write this book. It says he studied and he weighed and he arranged the book with great care. He tried to find words that would stick with you and also to kind of stick in you. American author and groundbreaking journalist Tom Wolfe, he described Ecclesiastes as the highest flower of poetry, eloquence, and truth, the greatest single piece of writing I have ever known. It's high praise. But just think, I mean, from Ecclesiastes are some of the most memorable and pointed phrases we have in the English language. You know, besides just vanity of vanities, do you remember some of the other things the preacher said? You know, in chapter one, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. It's become a you know, popular saying. Uh, or from chapter 3, For everything there is a season, and a time, and a matter under heaven. A time to be born, and a time to die. And he goes on you know, with all those opposites through the rest of the poem. It's really famous, really memorable. Or even in chapter 9, again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. So the teacher tried to choose words of delight so that you could picture what he's saying, so that you could remember what he's saying, so it would stick with you and you would take it to heart. But he didn't just want his words to stick with you, he also wanted them to stick in you and kind of jar you and jab you. As verse 11 says in our passage, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. So the words of the book were meant to jab us into action like the sharp end of a shepherd's staff moves its sheep to where they need to go. Do you remember some of these hard words? Some of these jabbing pointed words from the book like from chapter two? For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance 
seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. So I hated life because of what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all his vanity and a striving after the wind. Or in chapter 3, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beast for all is vanity. Or chapter 7, surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So these were words that were meant to make us uncomfortable in this life, meant to make us question what we're really living for and how much that's going to matter in the end and how much control we really have over our lives. Uh, I remember as a kid on our family's farm growing up, uh, we had a young horse there. Her name was Stardust. We actually had to watch her uh, be born. My sister and I saw her be born on our farm and we, we played with her, we trained her from the ground up, we rode her when she got old enough and we got bucked off by her. I mean, the whole nine yards with this horse. And Stardust was probably about two years old when the West Nile virus made its way into the US. I don't know if anybody remembers West Nile virus coming in, that was probably like 1999 or something like that. And she got it, she got the West Nile virus. And one of the things I'll always remember is that when we first noticed she was sick is we'd find her just laying down on her side, random places, the stall, the pasture. And the veterinarians told us that she stood a better chance of survival if we could stand her up and keep her moving, to not let her uh, get stagnant and just lay on her side. She'd, she'd have a better chance of living. So whenever we found her on the ground, we'd have to go get her up. I don't know if you've ever tried to move a horse um, it's not easy. I remember my dad had to be so rough with this, with this little horse, uh, pushing on her, pulling her every which way, you know, using the back of the barn to put your back against and using your legs to try to heave this horse up off the ground, prodding her, I mean, kicking her in the rump, whatever we had to do to get her moving. It was really painful to watch, but it was necessary for her survival. So, how has God been prodding you, kicking you in the rump through this book, poking at you? Ecclesiastes has really challenged us, has asked us if maybe we've put too much stock in chasing after pleasure and success and comfort and accolade and intellect, and we're too comfortable in this world, laying on our sides. Maybe we've put too much hope in what we're going to be able to leave behind and accomplish in this life whether that's a ministry legacy or an inheritance or a successful business. Maybe we hold on too tightly to the illusion of control in this life and we resist God. We get angry at him when things go awry. We've been challenged to think about how we approach God, to approach him with reverence and all, not just casually strutting into his presence without thought for who he is. We've been challenged to approach our work just for the goodness of the work itself, taking joy in the day instead of trying to use our work to build our entire sense of worth and significance around it. These are dangerous things for us that Ecclesiastes is trying to prod us and keep us going, to make us move, to make us move away from those things, to make us uncomfortable with life here under the sun. So maybe it would be worth, uh, I don't know, scanning back through the book this afternoon or sometime soon to ask God how he might be prodding you with this book, painful though it might be, for your good.
Verse 12, he goes on to say this, My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books. There is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Haven't seen this as a motto for too many seminaries, um, but what a great seminary graduation tattoo idea, though, you know? Just <laughs> something to think about, seminary students, when you graduate. Actually, that's probably a terrible idea. Don't do that. But seriously, what he's commending here is very wise. Although this was written 2,500, I don't know, 3,000 years ago, like back when you had to produce books on papyrus and stuff, <laughs> compare that to now, 2022, between half a million and a million books were published last year, not including self-published authors, which could amount to as many as 4 million books in 2022, just in one year. If you add to that all the articles that you could read online, podcasts that you could listen to, YouTube videos that you can watch to get information on things. I mean, we live in an era of true information overload. And you might resonate with this verse. It is wearisome to the flesh. I mean, how do you choose what to read? How do you keep up? How do you know who to listen to, which books to buy, which books to read? Ecclesiastes, it'll help give us some balance and priority. It warns us of going too far beyond the wise words of Scripture. Now, this is not to say for sure that Christians shouldn't be well-read or that Christians can't be well-informed. But if you're here and you're a Christian, let me just challenge you to make Scripture your first priority in your reading. Let it get the lion's share of your attention. Let it have the highest word count in your ears. I mean, most books and articles and podcasts, they're published because the producer or editor or whoever thinks that they will make money, that people will buy it, it'll get clicks, that it'll make money. It's got to make a splash, you know? So not every author out there has your best interest at heart when they write a book, you know? But these words, it says, are given by one shepherd. They are given for your good. Ecclesiastes was not published to make a prophet, but to shape a person. The author of Ecclesiastes is not making any money off you reading his book anymore, I'm pretty sure. And also, if you're, if you're here and you're not a Christian, and you would say that you're, just, you're trying to figure things out, you know, you're trying to test out what you think about God and about Christianity in particular, I applaud you for doing that. And I encourage you to do your research. I do believe that Christianity is intellectually credible, quite so. But I think the teacher would challenge you that at some point, the research will have to end and a decision will have to be made. Uh, in his novel, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis imagines what it might be like if residents of hell could come visit the borders of heaven and even be invited in. How would this go? So there's one who comes, this lifelong searcher, is invited into heaven by one who says this, I will bring you to the land, not of questions, but of answers, and you shall see the face of God. To which the searcher replies, Ah, but we must all interpret those beautiful words in our own way. For me, there's no such thing as a final answer. The free wind of inquiry must always continue to blow through the mind, must it not? To which the inviting one replies, Once you were a child. Once you knew what inquiry was for. There was a time when you asked questions because you wanted answers and you were glad when you had found them. 
become that child again, even now. But the searcher, seeker, responds mockingly and says he must get going because he forgot he has an appointment for his discussion group that was starting back in hell. So he has to, he has to leave. Now, if, uh, if you're seeking or searching, that's good. Uh, I know that faith and coming to faith can be a process, and that's good. But I would at least think the teacher here might challenge you to at least be open to the idea that there really is a final answer to be found. That you might not be able to get all of the answers for all of the questions that you have, but you may be able to get enough answers. Enough answers to trust God, enough answers to live for Him. So that may be one way that this passage might challenge you to not get stuck in just endless searching because you actually really have no interest in arriving at something solid and final in the end anyway. For Ecclesiastes, there is a final answer. There's a solid conclusion to all the searching and all the questing that's taken place in the book. So, let's look together at the book's conclusion. How does it end? Verse 13. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So after the long journey of searching and questioning that the book has taken us, this is the final stop. What's the point of it all? How should I live in light of the tragic sorrows and the wonderful joys and the unflinching brevity of life? How should I live? He says, fear God and keep his commandments. Okay, that's it, huh? Why say it like that? At first glance, you get to the end of the book, and this can seem a little less than maybe what we were hoping for in terms of the secret of life. Okay, that's it, huh? Fear God, keep his commands. Why not believe in God? You know, do good in the world. But I think he says it this way for good reason. Because as one writer put it, to fear God is to believe not just that he exists, but that he matters. To fear God is not to believe just that he exists, but that he matters. To fear God is to live your whole life in reference to Him, with Him as the center point, the driving force behind your choices and your attitudes. To fear God is to respond to Him in life with joyful awe rather than a shrug. This is the whole duty of man, it says. More literally rendered, this would be, this is the whole of mankind. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole of mankind. In other words, this is what it means to be most human, to be most in touch with reality, to be fully alive, and to live well is to live oriented to God. So the book concludes, while we may not have all of life figured out, we certainly don't, we certainly don't have God all the way figured out, here's what we do know. We should live our lives with him at the glad center. It's the only way to make some sense out of this life. Why? Because it's what we were made for. This is the whole of mankind. In other words, the human machine was made to run on God. You put anything else in the tank and it will be ruined. Fear God, keep his commands, for this is the whole of mankind. But then there's a second motivation lifted here, uh, listed here. Why should we fear God and keep his commands? 
perhaps even more powerfully, verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And while this conclusion, it leaves out some details that the New Testament will later fill in, the crux of the matter is still right on and totally in sync with the message of the rest of the Bible. In the end, all that will matter is whether God approves of your life or not. For all the things that Ecclesiastes questioned about life, in the end it shows us that we are going to be the ones who have to give some answers for our lives. There's a final review, a final analysis, and a final reckoning after which there are no more reviews. So all the things we did for good or evil in that moment will matter. Sometimes you begin to read the book of Ecclesiastes and you think he's saying nothing matters because of the vanity, vanity, meaningless, meaningless. But in the end, Ecclesiastes actually says everything matters. But maybe not in the way that you first thought. So many of the things that we tend to think matter so much in the end will not. And so many of the things that we were just prone to discount may matter most of all. The coworker that we snubbed, the pornography that we indulged in, the bitterness that we harbored, the superiority that we treasured, the material things that we overvalued. Or on the other hand, the sick person that we prayed for, the child who we got down on their level, looked in their eyes and listened to when they were hurt, the cup of water, the can of food we gave to someone in need, the temptation that was resisted time after time, though it would have been easier to give in, Sin that was confessed and forsaken. Time and money we secretly shared with someone in need. A kind word at just the right time. Ecclesiastes says one day this is all coming out into the light. So what we did and how we did it really does matter. So sometimes I have dreams. I have dreams that uh, it's the last day of the semester. Finals day. If any of you have ever had this dream, but it's usually the end of college or the end of seminary or something. And I show up to a class that like, I totally forgot about. Not a clue what's on the final. It's like, I just went the first day, I got the syllabus, and then somehow the rest of the semester didn't think a thing about it. And I'm absolutely unprepared. And it's usually about calculus or something that I haven't taken since college and still totally frightens me. And it's also usually an extremely realistic dream. And I'm a pretty heavy sleeper. So when I'm waking up, I'm not sure. Like if I actually finished school or if I need to go to class today. And or if I need to go back to school to validate the diploma that I think is still hanging on my wall. I just don't know. But when I finally wake up and get my wits about me and realize it's a dream, <laughs> I am like, so relieved. And I'm just happy to be alive. It's like Scrooge after his crazy dreams. He's like, yes, I am done. I knew I was finished. Ecclesiastes says there is a finals day, except it's not a dream. It's the final day to which we will all really wake up to, where the secrets of our hearts will be revealed and the secrets of our lives will be shown. And I don't know about for you, but for me, this is kind of a catch-22, Judgment Day. 
Because on the one hand, I really can't imagine a world without a judgment day. You know, where every wrong is put right. Those who got away with horrific brutality and prospered for it, of which has happened many times, are called to account. If there's no ultimate judge, what hope is there for the world? But on the other hand, if there is an ultimate judge, what hope is there for me? How will I fare before the perfectly righteous, all-knowing, holy God of creation? Ecclesiastes knows this day is coming, and therefore it wants to train us and warn us to live rightly before God, but it cannot fully see the way forward about how will we stand in the judgment. Only in the story of the Bible as it unfolds do we find that there's a way forward. Only in Jesus Christ is there a way forward, a way for our secrets to be judged and yet our souls to be spared. This is how the New Testament speaks about a day of judgment, that we're judged by Jesus Christ, God's Son. Paul, in his speech to the philosophers of Athens, said this, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God will judge the world and everyone in it in righteousness by Jesus Christ. And yet in Jesus Christ, he's made a way for us to escape the judgment and to have an innocent verdict delivered ahead of time. Jesus himself says this in John chapter 5. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. In Jesus, the final judgment for all of our secret deeds, the ones we are least proud of and will be most embarrassed about on judgment day have fallen upon him on the cross so that all who repent of their sin and fall upon him in faith will not come to judgment but will pass from death to life as john newton wrote when the list shall be produced of the talents i enjoyed means and mercies how abused time and strength how misemployed. Conscience then, compelled to read, must allow the charges true. Say, my soul, what canst thou plead? In that hour, what wilt thou do? But I see the book of life, the book of life I see. May my name be written there. Then from guilt and danger free, glad I'll meet him in the air. That's the book I hope to plead. Tis the gospel open wide. Lord, I am a wretch indeed. I have sinned, but thou hast died. Will Christians have to stand before God and give an account of their lives? Yes, we will. And should our lives have shown on that day a right fear of God and a steady keeping of his commands? Yes, they should. And because Christians of all people, we've been rocked by the fact that Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, the only one who has ever perfectly feared God and kept his commands, was punished in my place. When you see that, you feel it, you know it, you're rocked by that love. So of course 
I want to live bit by bit more in the right fear of God and the keeping of His commands. But knowing that my verdict is already settled frees me from the dread of the final day and enables me to live this brief life with purpose and with joy and to face the end of this brief life with hope and even anticipation. We all have a final day. And this book is teaching us how to live in light of that. So let's pray. Um, Then I want to bring this home in a kind of different way than, than we normally do. So let's pray. So God, we do thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes. In many ways, it has poked and prodded us in places that are tender to us. We do love comfort. We do love success, accolade, control. These things are fleeting. And this life will soon be past. So through this book, teach us to live it well. Teach us to live in a right fear of you. Enjoying the good gifts that you've given us, yes. But always, always oriented with you in the center. We give you thanks for Jesus Christ, who stood in our place in the judgment so that on judgment day we can stand with you. And it's through him that we pray. Amen. So to help us close out the book of Ecclesiastes, I've asked one of our North Wake families, Scott and A.D. Miles, if you guys want to come on up, uh, to share a bit um, about their experience of living light, uh, living life in light of your last day and about the book of Ecclesiastes and how it's sat with them. So, yep, have a seat. Well, welcome up. Um, Scott and A.D. are longtime North Wakers who have served in a billion different ways around here. Um, but my favorite is they served for really like seven, eight years with me in student ministry, which was kind of like the whole time that I was a student pastor. So once they moved on from student ministry, I just couldn't bear to stay any longer without the miles, and I had to do a, a different thing. But no, really love Scott and AD. They're, they're dear friends to me. So thank you guys for being willing to, to come up here with me and, and share a bit. So why don't you tell us, not everyone, a lot of folks do know you because uh, you've been here a while, but a lot of folks also don't know you. So why don't you reintroduce yourselves, tell us a little bit about your family and all that. Okay, thank you. Yeah, uh, I'm Scott. This is my wife, AD. We have been married uh, 27 years. Um, we have uh, two boys. Zach is 22. He's a recent graduate of NC State. We got Jake, he's 20, he's a rising junior at NC State. We are both graduates of NC State. We are definitely an NC State a family. I, I couldn't have guessed by the <laughs> colors. I'm surprised you don't have a logo on actually. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> nice, nice. So uh, we have been at North Wake for, since 2002. So we were here, building one was the only building standing or? The other, the, the old other, building one. The, yeah, the old y- building the, one, I'm the sorry. Youth, yeah, the where youth Where they gather, that's where we yep. were, the nightclub church as it was called back then. <laughs> Um, uh, but I, I am, I'm a civil engineer. That's what I graduated in. I've been working for the city of Rocky Mount for 22 years as a or four years. Yep. I've been there. But you've been a civil engineer but for I've like been a civil 22 engineer. years. Yep. I was with Wake Forest for 17 years before that. So I've been, been there doing that a long time. AD is a professor at the, uh, at the college at Southeastern. She's been full-time there since about 2017. She's been working there since about 20, 2012. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. 
Awesome, awesome. So, um, AD, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about your cancer diagnosis. Um, how long have you been battling cancer for now? Yeah. Um, so I was diagnosed with cancer in April of 2021. Um, and I would say, you know, that initial diagnosis, although it was a shock, I felt really optimistic. Um, the doctors were optimistic. We would do some rounds of chemo. We would do radiation and then surgery. And my thought was by April of 2022, cancer would be in my rear view. Um, but that, that's just not the way it played out. That's not what, that's not the path that God had for me. Um, I did do the chemo and I did do the radiation and then in November, I was preparing for surgery, and the pre-surgery scans showed that my, my cancer had metastasized. And I will say that that November and December were very, very dark months. Those were difficult months as I struggled to come to terms with having a terminal disease. And I also kind of struggled to figure out what God was up to, what was going on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm curious how our study of Ecclesiastes has landed for you guys. I mean, it is a book that's puts your mortality right in your face, and yet you guys were already experiencing that, you know, before we got to the book. So I'm curious if there's any parts of this study that either really resonated with you at this point in your journey, or that you just want to underscore, you know, for, for our church. Yeah, it, it, this book, it really has, has resonated with me. You know, you know, Larry, a few weeks ago, was preaching about, you know, how, how should we live? And, you know, when we got married, and you say your vows and sickness and health, mm. You know, I said it, I meant it. <laughs> but when you're really faced with that, um, you, you can really be robbed of your joy. Mm. And, you know, in that same sermon, I think Larry talked about choosing joy. And so that's really what I've had to try to do. Um, and, it, and it has been difficult, but I think in those moments, you, you just, you got to pray, you know, um, you know and, and, and look for the joy in each day and turn to God. I mean, what am I thankful for today? What's, what's a good thing, that a blessing from God that I can look at, at, at today? And Carson, you know, you, you said in one of your sermons a few weeks ago, it's a do not be afraid of death. Embrace life with a purpose and face death with hope. And that is not easy. Um, and being faced with that, that choice, it, it, it's, a, it's not easy at all. So, you know, when I'm tempted to be grumpy, when I'm tempted to be angry because it's another thing that I've looked at has happened in these last two years is my, my emotions are right below the surface. Anything can tip me off and it could be something happy. It could be something sad. Um, so when I'm tempted to do that, I, I ultimately, I think about one of the things that you said in your sermon, in your sermon, and it says, God ultimately will not disappoint. And I cling to that and I get comfort from that. Mm. Yeah, and I would, I would echo what Scott said. Um, you know, Larry talked about choosing joy. And when we think about it, like, our future, my future is in God's hands. And that does enable us to choose joy. And um, I know we're in Ecclesiastes, but if I, if I skip ahead to the New Testament. Um, Which I've done, like, every sermon, so allowable. I'm in good company, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, but one of my favorite verses is John 10.10, 10, which says that the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but Jesus came so that we would have life. And it's not just that he came so that we would have regular life or average life or mundane life. Like that verse says he came so that we would have abundant life. And there's no asterisk 
by that verse. It doesn't say, unless you have cancer. Um, just like Ecclesiastes, when Ecclesiastes is encouraging us to enjoy the blessings that God has given us, there's no asterisk that says, unless you have cancer or unless something bad is going on. Um, and these verses are for me. My, my life is abundant. My life is blessed. Um, and that, that's such a, a joy, honestly, just to, to contemplate those words of God. Um, it was also helpful a few weeks ago when Jerry Laster was preaching and he talked about how our days are numbered. That's also very comforting to me to know that God has planned my life out before I was ever born. Um, and, you know, he has a plan. His plans are good. Um, and my job right now is, is to live for him, to obey him, to trust him. Um, and I have learned, and I will continue to learn, um, to try not to worry about tomorrow. Because if I worry about tomorrow, if I get so caught up in tomorrow, then that robs me of my joy today. And I don't want to be robbed of the joy that God's given me today. Mm -hmm. uh, in light of all that, and in light of an uncertain prognosis, I am curious about how you guys have maybe altered some of the ways that you live, things that you choose to do, the plans that you make, your outlook on life, the things that you pray for, uh, the things you're choosing to enjoy right now. Um, yeah. Yeah. These last two years, we really have been blessed with a lot of life events. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've had two graduations, Jake from high school, Zach from college. I've had the birth of a grand nephew and a grand niece. Um, we've been blessed with trips. I mean, we've been able to take many trips. We've been to Jamaica. We've been to Italy. We've been to Disney. We've been to the beaches of North Carolina countless times. And it's really taught me to see these as a blessing from God and to really enjoy the moment that I'm there. Like, for instance, we were at Disney, and we were in one of those long lines at Disney. It was 45 minutes to an hour for one of the rides. And normally, I'd be aggravated by that and grumpy. But... I look back, and that was time that I just sat there. We were in line with my family, with AD, with the boys. We were talking. You know, we were playing a little game together on the phone. And I, I remember that more than I remember the ride. Mm. Um, it's just seeing each moment as a blessing and look, looking for the good, looking for the silver lining, so to speak. Um, it has also taught me really to pray differently. I mean, I, I think I pray specifically for things like, you know, when this scan was coming up, pray for this. And, and I was trying to, I was putting God almost in a box when I prayed. And so, you know, I still do pray for things specifically, but now I've learned that when I pray, it's like God may have things for me that I don't even realize, that I don't even, can't even fathom. And so I always pray that prayer, God, your will, I pray for this, but if not, I pray your will because he might be waiting to give me something even greater than even I can imagine. Yeah, and I would, I would echo that for sure. Over the last two years, God has just given us so many blessings, and it really is more than we could have ever asked or imagined. Um, but I will say that early on, I had, I had to learn to change my thinking. Um, as I mentioned before, that kind of that first Christmas was a, was a dark month, um, coming to terms with what my life was. Um, and I remember one day, I just got in the mood, for whatever reason, I wanted to make a pound cake. Um, but I didn't have a tube pan. I had a bump pan, but I didn't have a tube pan. And so I did what most of us would do, right? I went on Amazon to look for a tube pan. And I'm kind of scrolling through and looking at these pans and trying to decide. And then it kind of hit me, should I buy a tube pan? How many pound cakes am I going to make? And how many more Christmases do I have? 
How many more birthdays or special occasions? Should I buy this tube pan? And that was, those, these were not happy thoughts. Um, I was not feeling good at all going down that path. And I, I really felt like, um, you know, I had to be honest with God and confess that I was going down the path of hopelessness, and that was not the path that he had for me. Um, and I had to recognize right then, stop doing this. This, this, is not, this is not what God has for you. Don't choose hopelessness. Choose joy. Um, and even in those dark days, God does have joy to give. Um, and so that's what I want to continue to do. Choose hopelessness over joy and recognize, like Scott was saying, the truth of the day. Like the truth of that day was I felt good enough to make a cake. And there are other days, there have been many days, when I felt good enough to make a cake or make cookies or make dinner or, you know, have game night with the family or grade papers, although I don't know that we all, does anyone ever really feel like grading papers? But, you know, um, like he can grade the papers. Um, And do other projects, like I got to write a book with Ben Merkel. Like these are all amazing blessings um, that God has given, and it is more than I could have asked or imagined. And so, you know, I've just had to to come to terms with not worrying about tomorrow. I, I can't let tomorrow's worries rob me of the joys of today. Mm-hmm. Any other ways that you've experienced God's goodness or the goodness of life, even in the midst of uncertainty, sadness? Yeah, I, I definitely have. Um, I think it's given me a lot more boldness to share what's going on in my life uh, and, and to, share, to, to share with Jesus. I mean, at work, you know, I, people know that I'm a Christian, and I'm not shy about that. And I, I've tried to really, in a way, you know, tell people about God. Um, and, and through that, I've shared, you know, what's going on with my life with a lot of coworkers and, and my family. And, you know, people have started coming to me when, you know, did they have difficulties in their lives, when they have health issues, they're asking me to pray for them. Mm-hmm. And that's an opportunity now that I have that I wasn't taking advantage of before. So this, you know, path that we're on is, is leading to opportunities, and I need, I need to not be afraid, and I need to take advantage of them. Because this, there, there is a truth out there that we were just talking about. There is a day that's coming, and it would be mean of me not to warn people about that and to share it. So it's, it, it isn't easy, but I'm making strides, um, and I, I, I just I hope I can do better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I would agree with that. I do think that um, through this, God has given me a bolder witness. Um, And I think a big part of that is the goodness that he's shown. Like, I want to share that goodness. I want to tell other people, this is the goodness of God. These blessings are real. Um, Even, you know, even when things aren't going exactly the way we would have written our own story, um, I am eager to share God's goodness with people. Um, And I would say, you know, this past year was my second year of cancer, and I... I worked my full-time job. I taught my full load, and that's, that was a gift of God. That was a blessing from him. Um, in the whole year, even with chemo treatments, I only missed one day of work. Like, to God be the glory for that. Um, and for all the other things that we've gotten to do, I really see God's goodness in not just letting me be a spectator at things, you know, the, the sick person on the sideline watching it happen. That hasn't been me. I've been the mom who's been involved. You know, I, I made the beds for move in and move out of college. Um, I, I kept up with everybody at Disney. I will say that Jake did carry me on his back once, but 
you know, I carried him on my back a few years ago, so now we're even. Um, but I, and I kept up with the group in Italy. Like I, it's not that I just kind of got to see it, but God has allowed me because of His goodness to be fully present, fully involved, and a hundred percent do everything that I've wanted to do. Um, another goodness of God that I've seen on displays is right here at North Wake. And this is an amazing church to be a part of. And over the last two plus years, you guys have posted on my Facebook wall, you've texted me, you've sent me cards, you've made me meals, and, all, and you've prayed for me. Um, and that has been such an encouragement. And when I'm feeling bad, when I'm having a dark day, I, re- I reread what you've written. And that lifts me up. And I praise God for you. Um, every single like on Facebook, I say, thank you, Lord, for that prayer. Um, so you guys are, are certainly one of the top blessings that we have in our lives. Mm. Uh, last question is, A.D., I've heard you say before something like this. Although you wish you didn't have cancer, you wouldn't trade the experience that you've gained from it. How, how can that be? Yeah, I like what I've learned. I would like to have learned it in a different way. Yeah. Um, you know, before this experience, I was not a person who spent a lot of time in the Psalms. I didn't love the Psalms. I loved narrative. I wanted to hear the story. Um, but with cancer, I've really learned to love the Psalms. And I think a, a lot of that is because I identify more with David and the other psalmists who are praying against an enemy. Like, I have a real enemy that I want God to destroy, and it's called cancer. Um, and so just connecting with their feelings, I feel like um, that has kind of brought me closer to God. I feel like I've experienced God in a deeper way. Um, I've prayed the prayer of Jesus, you know, Lord, please let this cup pass for me. I don't want it. And, you know, Jesus prayed that prayer. I never, I never had that feeling before. I never had something so awful that I kind of identified with Jesus before the crucifixion, which is not to say that cancer is the same as crucifixion. Um, but thinking about how upset he was and how sad he was um, to know it was before him to go through that and asking the father, please let there be another way. Um, but you know, the end of that story is Jesus loved me so much that he did his father's will. He stayed on that path. Um, and that gives me strength and encouragement to know that I can stay on this path because Jesus loves me and I can stay on this path because I love him. Um, and, and many stories in the Bible, stories of suffering, teach us that su- suffering happens for a reason. It's, it's not for nothing. Um, and God always brings good out of it. Um, and so I think that's my, my big takeaway. I serve a good God. He can't not be good. And he has plans. He has plans for me. He has plans for all of us. And those plans are ultimately good. And that's where my joy comes from. That's where I choose to live. Amen. You know, and um, I'm sure I speak for a lot of us, but for me personally, I am just so deeply encouraged by you guys. I know this is genuinely a struggle. It is, and it's still a struggle, and it's still hard. Um, But we will all face dark days ourselves or those that we love. And so you guys' choice to embrace life and to live and a turn to Jesus is just a huge encouragement to, to me. So thank you for talking today, I mean, twice now, about things that are just sensitive and vulnerable and difficult. So let's give them a, a thank you for sharing.
Let me pray for us. Let me pray for you guys, and then we'll, we'll close and worship together. So let's pray. So Jesus, these, my friends, uh, I bring to you, and I'm so thankful for them, for their lives, for their friendship, that even though they are walking through a dark valley, they are clinging to you. And Lord, we continue to ask for your healing hand. We do pray that you would heal A.D., that you would uh, rid her body of cancer, and that she would live a full and long life. But in the midst of the uncertainty, Lord, of what will happen, just as importantly, we pray for your nearness to them, that you would fill them with the joy of the Holy Spirit because it is spiritual, spirit-filled joy that they need, joy that must come far from beyond this world in the circumstances we find ourselves in. So even in their deep sadness, uh, fill them with your nearness, and Lord, for each of us, as we face our own dark roads in this world, um, give us grace to turn to you, to live the life you have for us, and to live it with hope because we know the end of the story and the end of your story is good. It is good. So we give you ourselves once again today, Christ. Would you meet us here in this broken world under the sun, Teach us how to live. We thank you for your love. And it's through Christ we pray. Amen.